an ideal world, everything that you bought on a supermarket shelf and every bowl of cereal or bite of a chocolate bar or bowl of pasta or meal that you had would mean nature was better off as a result of the way the ingredients that went into those products are grown. And so those who are in charge of designing the products that we put in our supermarket uh, baskets have a real ability to change the system. You know, so you think of the large food corporations or even the small innovators who are making or manufacturing those food products. If you th if you think about their design decisions around how they are procuring the various ingredients or how they are specifying that maybe maybe we should use heritage varieties of carrots or potatoes or whatever it is in the product what that would entail for farmers and therefore landscapes you know i think there is a there is an argument to say there is a huge responsibility on on organizations that manufacture the food that we put into our shopping baskets every day hello and welcome to the circular economy show podcast I'm Pippa Shawley, and in this episode, we'll meet three brands using circular design principles to create their products. In the last two episodes, we heard about why our current food system needs to change and how farmers can help to address biodiversity loss and climate change. If you missed those, then I recommend you have a listen before diving into today's episode. Before we hear from our guests, I asked Rhaenyra O'Donnell, food lead here at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, what we mean when we talk about redesigning food. So what we're talking about, Pippa, is rethinking, I guess, the ingredients that go into the food products that we see on our supermarket shelves. So thinking about how do we use more diverse ingredients in our food products? How do we use ingredients that have a lower impact on the environment? How do we use upcycled ingredients? Um, you know, and really importantly, how do we think about designing food products that enable farmers to farm ingredients in a way that are regeneratively grown, so in regenerative farming systems. And the work that we've done <clears throat> really shows that if we start to think about redesigning food using these, these kind of core principles, that actually we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the food that we are growing by 70%, and we can reduce biodiversity loss by up to 50%. Circular Design for Food is about putting nature at the centre of product decisions, from concept to ingredients to packaging. So let's meet one of the brands redesigning the way our food is made. Ruby's in the Rubble was founded in 2012 by Jenny Costa, who set up the condiment brand after reading about the amount of waste generated by the food industry. She used her mum's jam and chutney recipes to preserve fruit and vegetables that would otherwise be thrown away, starting her business in a burger van in London. Back in 2012, no one was talking about food waste. It was a really hippie notion. If, if anything, it was talked about just from a financial point of view, but it was bin divers and um, it, it was almost people wanted to show that they were affluent enough to eat and could waste. And it's also a very hard one to get your head around because it's compostable and people are like, well, what's the big deal? But it's, um, I suppose it's the, it's the thinking back of that bowl of pasta that you've made too much of and, and what was the carbon footprint of getting that bowl of pasta made and, and on your plate. Um, so yeah, I started really passionate about that, having found this gem of knowledge and just wanting to share it. And so on the weekends, I started selling um, my mum's old recipes, really. I, I made the, the, the classical, traditional way of preserving something. I started going to fruit and veg markets, taking surplus fruit and veg or things that would otherwise be wasted. I went along to ones in the middle of the night around sort of 
4 a.m. Um, so it was the big, big wholesale fruit and veg markets. And started learning about the supply chain and then taking anything that was surplus or was about to, we would only have a couple of days left in it and then turning it into something that I could extend the shelf life. And it's, it's a very traditional thing that people have been doing for, for generations of a way of preserving fruit and veg. And I got so excited about it. I thought, I'm going to start a brand about this. I want to make the best tasting products and raise awareness of this need to value food again through an old traditional method um, and start working with farmers and, and different markets around the country. After experimenting with her recipes and learning what customers liked, Jenny realised that to scale the business, she needed to find fresh produce before it made it to the fruit and veg markets where she began. So we started on the market, um, taking surplus from the market, and then started speaking to a lot of the farmers while we were in our little porter cabin and realising the scale was actually, and the things that we wanted to use were on the farm. Um, we had uh, one tomato farmer that was sort of saying in summer months he can throw around 35 tonnes of tomatoes that he called his two sort of good good to use tomatoes. Um, so we then started working with these different chains of farmers and um, and eventually we got to the point that we couldn't make everything in our little porter cabin. We started supplying into Waitrose. Um, we did a lot with Eat with Jamie Oliver back in those days and then, um, and then slowly grew from there. As rubies in the rubble continued to grow, it was time for the business to pivot its offering and scale. I got on some investors in 2018 and they said, you know, if you really want to make an impact, look at the market and the size of Chutney. You need to go into mainstream condiments where you can access a bigger market and really raise awareness of the message, make people think about it while they've got it in their fridge. And that was when we took the leap into plant-based mayonnaises, which are not obviously based on fruit and veg, but we work with Aquafaba. So teaming up with hummus manufacturers that were cooking chickpeas and they would normally throw away that water and we would collect it and dehydrate it into a powder and put it back into a mayonnaise and replace the egg. And we created a range of different mayonnaises. And um, and then similarly with our ketchup, we were looking at ketchup and thinking what's the biggest ingredient in, in a classic in your use of mainstream ketchups um tomatoes around nine percent of the recipe or ten percent maybe max and then the, the bulk of the recipe is water vinegar and sugar so we replaced the water and half of the sugar with pears and we worked with local pear farmers and would make a pear puree which has a very neutral taste um and put that into it sort of better for you better for the planet and and uh, a ketchup that we could put our put our name to so as well as upcycling produce that would otherwise have gone to waste, Ruby's in the Rubble has diversified the ingredients it uses in its recipes. This is another key part of creating a circular design for food. Those same principles can also be applied to what we drink. I spoke to botanist and archaeologist Elzan Singles, who co-founded Grounded Ingredients, to learn how they are working with farmers and plant gatherers across the continent of Africa to source and grow indigenous plants for teas. While Camellia sinensis, the plant used to make tea, is grown throughout East Africa and some of the wetter areas of Southern Africa, Elzan believes there is a huge opportunity for using indigenous African plants such as rooibos and honeybush to make herbal teas. First of all, people are realizing how many functional benefits herbal teas can have. And apart from that, you can have a greater diversity of enjoyment as well of what you're drinking, um, but also have a bigger impact with your purchases that you're making. In a wider 
area of scope, uh, you know, from the tip of Africa all the way to the north, you could potentially be drinking indigenous teas from all over. Um, so we have a portfolio of indigenous herbal teas that we're also, I would say, is like the most important part of our portfolio um, because we're also well positioned here to really interrogate what the impacts of those value chains are and really drill down to the essence of how to set up and commercialize indigenous tea, herbal teas correctly. Um, so that's really where a core focus of our tea portfolio has been, was in drilling down what is the impact of the rooibos industry, of the honeybush industry, of pufu, um, and then there's lots of other indigenous herbals that are also becoming more and more popular in Europe and in North America. Rooibos belongs to the pea family and grows in a small area in the Cedarburg, about 300 kilometers north of Cape Town in South Africa. Elzan says the flavor of the region comes through in the taste of the indigenous ingredients. So we are in the Cape Floristic region, which is a very special type of vegetation that grows here called fynbos. And fynbos has very characteristic types of com compounds that occur in the plants here. And that's where the taste of indigenous herbal teas from the Cape come from. So rooibos and honeybush taste like fynbos. So if you ever come and visit the Cape and you go walking on Table Mountain, you will smell that essence of fynbos. And that is what the tea tastes like. It really tastes like the landscape, which is beautiful. Um, but in terms of people that maybe don't <laughs> won't be able to access the Faltia and go walking on Table Mountain, um, it is described as a woody flavor that has uh, fruity notes. So depending on where it comes from, different fruity notes. Um, but mostly that I think that woodiness uh, describes it quite well. So it's a very earthy drink um, with some sweet uh, notes. So it is very popular in blends. Uh, it's a very good base for blending. So if you want to put something on it that's a little bit stronger, um, like chai, rooibos is very popular, for example, because those more stronger flavored spices pair so well with the earthy uh, base of rooibos. While taste is incredibly important for consumers, cultivating plants in the regions they are native to is low impact and good for the climate, as Alzan says. A very big uh, motivator for me to use indigenous products as a botanist is the uh, impact on the climate that it could have. So if you look within South African systems, um, in the past, huge... Uh, dam projects were done to make sure that farmers had ample uh, water for irrigation. It's not for drinking water. And they would plant still to this day in some of the most arid regions in our country, there's mangoes being grown because it's very nice and hot and beautiful fertile soils and all of the water just being sucked up and used. And recently, I don't know if your listeners will be familiar, but uh, we have experienced a very long, very severe drought in South Africa. And Cape, Cape Town came very close to not having any water in our taps. Wow. Um, multiple times. And in that time, the irrigation dams were, of course, completely empty. So that puts a farmer actually in a very vulnerable position throughout climate change. So what's great about 
Some indigenous plants, especially if they're grown in the area where they occur, is that they are naturally adapted to that area and the soils. So you need less fertilizer. Rooibos is a very, another very good example. Rooibos, you overwater it, usually that's how it dies. So it actually doesn't need you to water it because it lives in the mountains where it just gets the natural rainfall of the area and it creates its own nitrogen. So you don't need to fertilize it. So it's like a super good example of how indigenous crops that are even cultivated and not wild harvested could create more resilient farming systems in uh, the projections for climate change that are kind of required for farmers to still make an income. Resilient farming systems that don't rely on synthetic fertilisers are a key part of a circular economy for food. Another brand with ambitions to grow nature-positive food is Hodmidods in the UK. Last year, the foundation went to visit Nick Saltmarsh and Josiah Meldrum, who founded the company with William Hudson in the east of England, to find out why they started selling beans, pulses and peas. Nick started by explaining what Hodmidods means. A homodod is, depending where you are in Suffolk or Norfolk, it can mean a hedgehog, it can sometimes mean a snail. They're sort of round and curled up. So perhaps slightly fancifully, a, a bean or a pea is round and curls up in its pod. So there was a, a tenuous connection with the beans and peas that were our first products. By sourcing and growing a diverse range of pulses, grains and flour, Hodmiduds are cultivating diversity and helping customers switch to lower impact varieties that are often forgotten. Josiah explains how these beans and peas not only provide nutritious food for people to eat, but also help nature to thrive on the farm. 5%, roughly speaking, of all man-made climate emissions come from the production of nitrogen. So if we can avoid it by using plants like these beans, then that's absolutely fantastic. This sense that there is this, what you could broadly call a global emergency, and it, you, could, you could put the climate into that, you could put biodiversity loss into that, you could put inequality of food distribution into that, you could put chronic ill health into that. And really, that's what we're driven by. You know, how, do we, how do we find answers to these complex problems? How do we find a systems approach that will allow us to make a positive shift through, through diet and land use? And beans and peas are just at the heart of that. So as well as feeding itself, this bean can potentially be feeding other crops in the field. So if we were to drill wheat into this bean crop, the wheat would grow better and lead less nitrogen because the bean would be feeding it. One business working with Hodmidods is Maple Farm, a 137 hectare organic farm situated near the Suffolk coast. Farmer Mike Mallett says that growing peas for the brand has helped close the loop across his farm. I was really quite shocked to find that in order to make our hen food, uh, we were using soya beans that were imported from China. And I thought, how can it be that we're having to bring these beans halfway across the world in order to, uh, in order to feed our hens? And we tried all sorts of approaches. And about 15 months ago, somebody suggested to me, why not try keeping mealworms, raising mealworms, with a, use, with a view to using them as an alternative to soya? Because they're a high-protein food source. And being insects, and chickens want to eat insects, they're just a kind of perfect match, really. The beauty of the system is we've got the flour mill next door. And when we're producing flour, that also produces bran. Um, and the bran is the perfect medium and food for the mealworms. So we put um, bran in the trays, 
um, along, along with also some of the um, pea flour that comes from Hopper Dodds. The frass powder, is, which is their waste product, that's kept, and, and that is a fantastic fertiliser. This system means Mike no longer has to pay for imported chicken feed or synthetic fertilisers. Josiah hopes more businesses will follow suit. By making a lot of noise and demonstrating that change is possible, we can inspire farmers and other businesses in order to make changes to the way that they're working as well. We are not the change. We are simply a catalyst and an enabler uh, for change, I hope. Mike and Josiah's story reminds us that even though we often think of ingredients in isolation, the system in which they are produced has a huge impact on the shape of our landscape. And, as Josiah says, it will take more than one business to create a nature-positive food system. But brands like Rubies in the Rubble, Grounded Ingredients and Hodmidods are showing how applying the circular design for food framework to products and portfolios can contribute to this change. So next time you look in your fridge, think about the ingredients you have and how they could support a climate-friendly future. In next week's episode, we'll look at the role of retailers. I hope you can join us then. Thanks for listening. This episode was supported by players of People's Postcode Lottery. The Circular Economy Show podcast is published by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and produced by Skinny Mammoth Media. Thanks to our contributors, Jenny Costa, Elzan Singles and the Hobmidods team.